Hello, this is Graphic Policy Radio, and this is a comics podcast. This is your host, Elon Eleven, and this is the comics podcast for readers who love a well-crafted horror thriller that hits close to home, has a sense of humor, and shows its fangs to the right targets. So we're here today to talk about Parasocial, which is a new original graphic novel coming out on Image Comics. And I have the two creators of this graphic novel joining me today on the show. A little bit about Parasocial from the back. In the middle of the pandemic, a fading genre TV actor, fresh from his long-running series cancellation, collides with an obsessive fan at a Texas convention. When she lures him to her home, He'll have to put out in the greatest performance of his life simply to survive until morning. Unless, of course, he's the real monster. Joining me on the show again is Alex DeCampi, a best-selling, critically acclaimed horror thriller writer whose recent graphic novels include Dracula Motherfucker, also with Erica Henderson, Maddie, co-written with Duncan Jones on Z2 Comics, which we spoke about actually on my show a couple years ago, the Eisner-nominated Bad Girls, and in addition to Parasocials, she has a cyberpunk adventure story, Scrapper, co-written with games legend Cliff Bolzinski, debuting in July from Image, an action buddy comedy, Bad Karma with Ryan Howe and Dee Cunniff coming out in November. I love Bad Karma. I'm so excited for you guys to get to read that in print for who those of you who have been waiting for it in print. She also writes for TV and film, like the Blade Runner anime and more. Welcome back, Alex. Hey, guys. It's great to be here. Yeah, I got a lot of books coming. Alex, I, I'm excited to have you back on the show to talk about this comic. I I had heard like a tiny snippet about it from you. I think it was at like Halloween. And then suddenly it was in my hand so quickly, which was amazing. Well, it wasn't quick behind the scenes. Well, it, was, it was quick behind the scenes. And also we got an arc, which was amazing, an advanced review copy, which hardly ever happens in comics, which so that I've been like... Mm-hmm thrilled about that for ages they made printed copies of my book for ALA and 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 I got to hand them out to friends and it was super cool comics don't get arcs almost ever four yeah. comics a year get arcs and we were one of them so I don't really talk about my books very much on the internet I'm just always making them when you're when you're a baby creator you just talk about your books all the time because you think if you're not constantly talking about a book and people don't see you producing books you'll just vanish you'll just go poof and disappear and no one will ever hear from you again mm. and i'm here to tell you baby creators that's a lie you don't have to work that hard and also things change with books they get delayed sometimes they don't happen i i'm once you know erica was on this book i knew it would happen because erica is like the most reliable person ever but but, <laughs> but we got this yes. like, from from writing it from the vague idea i had the vague idea gosh october I want to say 2020 driving up to Maine on a long ride and I was mad about a bunch of stuff and and sometimes when I'm doing something like an eight-hour car trip my brain just goes places and I thought up most of the story then and kind of hit up Erica a few months later going hey I have this I have this idea that one des- proves that I desperately need therapy but I'm not going to get it and two could <laughs> make a really interesting horror story and she's she she kind of loves when I show her weird stuff <laughs> I guess <laughs> it's really strange. And I sent it to her and she's like, yeah, I'll try this. Yes. I'm so excited to have Erica on the podcast. I've been a fan of your work since, oh gosh, Erica, I think like a piece I had commissioned by you was one of the first things I ever got commissioned at a con. It was like a wedding gift oh for God. a friend of mine. So yeah, it was thousands of years ago. For those who are not instantly familiar with her by name, 
you actually probably secretly are because Erica Henderson is a New York Times bestselling and Eisner Award winning artist and writer. Notable works include Dracula Motherfucker with Alex DeCampi, as we've mentioned, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl with Ryan North, Marvel, and most recently Danger and Other Known Risks, which is out on Penguin Random House. I'm also a big fan of Assassination Nation as well, like just real, really appreciating your work. So welcome oh, yeah, to the show. Really Thank you. And yeah, it's amazing having, as a critic, yes, like nobody ever gives me printed arcs. And I'm so glad I have a print version of this because boy, do you do a lot of color work in here that I would, it would not feel the same for me to look it out on a screen, you know? Uh, Yeah, it was funny. I actually got printed arcs for Danger as well, but those were all black and white. So I didn't wind up handing any out. (laughs) I just gave people the PDF because I was like, no. I worked so hard on this color and it's so much about color is so important to me. I think it's so important Mm, to the storytelling and the mood. So yeah, I, these arcs look great. But I think there's six different color palettes that you're managing in here because this book is all about different, is all about perspectives. Right. You know, we have in multiple perspectives from the same people, you have a color scheme for the lies people tell themselves and a different one for the lies they tell others basically. Yeah, I think it was, um, it. Be- I think partly I really got into Italian gallo movies because they play around to color so much. And part of my thing mm. with color is that like, when, especially when you're working in a comic, you're dealing with a medium that's so abstract that I don't know why you should feel the need to stay realistic, you know? Because like, right. we're, we're dealing with this medium where like, you're you're seeing a still image that represents an amount of time with a gap between the next still image represents an amount of time. We can get weird with it, right? It's already weird. Mm-hmm. And I yeah, I, yeah, I love doing that with color. This is such a comics comic in that way, you know? So, you know, for listeners um, who haven't picked up the book yet, I really want to encourage people to read it. And so we're going to start the first half of this episode will be spoiler free you know, to like the extent such thing is is possible while talking about a sort of suspense horror comic, it'll be spoiler free. And then I will loudly bookmark when we get into spoiler territory, because there's like a jaw dropping ending. And I will say the first time I read this graphic novel, well, I read it three times in a row while sitting on the beach, but I was making audible noises. Like my husband was like, I take it you're excited about this sitting next to me. (laughs) But like the ending is such that I need to talk with you about the ending, but I will not be talking with you about the ending until we've given people who haven't read it yet a chance to hear why this book is so good. So don't, don't feel like you need to wait to read the book to listen to this, listen to this, and we'll tell you when, you know, it's going to be moving into spoiler territory. So, but yeah, like that's the nature of a suspense and horror story, right? Especially something original like this. And actually, how did you guys connect in the first place? Twitter. I mean, we know we knew each other. We'd run into <laughs> conventions. But I had the book that, I mean, I originally wrote Dracula Motherfucker for Katie Skelly after our oh. romance. And then she got busy and moved across the U.S. And you know, she, she had some stuff going on as well. And she's like, I, I can't do this. And Erica mm. had been posting, and Erica, who I knew from Pearl Girl, and from like local conventions because we're in the same region of the U.S. She was posting her horror art, you know, s- sketches and, and designs and 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 warm ups based around horror films because she's a massive horror fan and even does a horror podcast. And I was like, wow, she she could she can do this. I know she can do this. And I think at the time, 
not many people were coming up to Erica and, and being like, please, can you do this extremely fucked up horror book? This is true. <laughs> because people were like, oh, she does Squirrel Girl. Would you like to do another YA book? And you were probably yeah. like, sure, I guess. Yeah. And I'm like, can you do this thing that's just like extremely strange and actually about systemic patriarchal patterns of abuse and the women who encourage them? And she's sure. But, but it's also like a psychedelic 70s pastiche. Yeah, there's a, a psychedelic 70s Jalo that has that has you know Dracula characterization lifted from parts of Full Metal Alchemist and fuck what was that what was the there was another anime I can't remember the name of it now it was really old that has Dracula not, in it except he's Vampire Hunter D is it person. no it's, it has Dracula in it he's, but he's called Alucard wait isn't that Vampire Hunter D it could be like I mean you know anime ain't subtle around mm. this fuck, what was it called I used to watch it so much. But it's okay. He takes on this kind of dark, multi-eyed thing for a couple of seconds here and there. And I'm like, I like that. Because I was really... This was soon after the Stephen Moffat Dracula had come out. Yeah, it was. The Netflix thing. Yeah. Yeah. And Klaus Bang is like a nice actor and stuff like that. But God, he wasn't scary. It was just some dude in a velvet cape. And he, I was looking at him. You knew he smelled of mothballs. And I'm like, man, let's like make Dracula scary again, 2020. Mm. But yeah, so so Erica and I mm-hmm. got on like a house and fire, had a great time making the book. And then I came to her with Parasocial afterwards, like a, about probably a year afterwards. So I will say like the transition from the last book you guys worked on together to, you know, Dracula Motherfucker transition to this is really like a perfect lead in. I think somebody might not recognize how closely these kinds of stories are with each other, but you, the story of the vampire and definitely really strong like sexism and gender politics in the other book and then a lot of that also is just picked up here as well yeah i tend to write books which are about two things at once i mean i love jalo i love grindhouse i love garbage um and i regularly sit down and write and sit and i'm like i'm just going to write a fun book that doesn't have any great literary meaning and is just just a chance for me to blow off steam and spoiler that never happens but also, especially my books with Erica, like when I create a book for and with Erica, like I, I almost feel like I have to like, I mean, I, I always bring my A game, but for Erica, it's something special because I know I can try really odd stuff. And first of all, she'll tell me if I'm too full of it. And second <laughs> of all, she'll then use that as a laboratory for her visual storytelling. So the stories are vastly different in terms of look and in terms of the structural things you had to overcome to tell the story. I mean, it's not a spoiler to say that a large portion of parasocial happens in one room. Right. And and we've heard of misery. Yes. (laughs) And part of my challenge and Erica's challenge was to make this book exciting when it had a very limited geographical space to move around in. I think we achieved that. that We did. uh, Both of us put a lot of thought into how that would happen. Whereas. Dracula Motherfucker was much dreamier. We had all of LA to play with. We could change locations. We could do all sorts of stuff. This was more, you know, this was more grounded in a reality rather than kind of a made up 1974 LA. But that still didn't stop us from taking great big visual and literary leaps in it. But yeah, I, I, I think my brand of horror, such as it is, is, you know, is kind of deeply in. It, informed by a splatter aesthetic and by a need to be horrifying, but also about 
you know, that wonderful part of the exorcist. Let me just, I'm just going to drag William Friedkin in here. Do it. Love him. Right. And God, what was the name of the writer of the exorcist? He, he, he also, he, he wrote and directed the, the, the ninth configuration or whatever it was, the, the, the um, oh. Oracle Spark or oh. Kane or whatever it is. Do you mean the script or the book? Yeah. William Peter Blatty. I knew it was Blatty. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. That part was correct. But the funny thing about the, the exorcist is it, a different thing is scary every 10 years when you watch it. Hmm. Like when you're a little kid, like when you're like a teenager, the whole devil thing is scary. The whole devil daughter thing is scary. When, when you're a mom, if you choose to ever be a a parent or when you, when you are an age to interact with smaller children, the whole upfront medical, like Regan's mom looking, trying to figure out what's wrong with her daughter and the, the, just the hospital complex just not giving her any answers that's terrifying uh, when you're even a little mm. older still and you've got ailing dying parents you know father Karras's whole thing about dealing with his father is is utterly horrifying and uh, his these father? are real world horrors that are happening within this film about the devil possessing this little girl and her vomiting and her head spinning around so i think sometimes like you can find horror is a wonderful way of expressing real world tensions and fears and so i enjoy kind of using that to explore kind of larger deeper concepts but also having lots of blood and i think the best horror is that way because as an adult i'm not scared of let's say dream demons but (laughs) watching night run elm street now i'm just like oh this is about the sins of your parents coming back at you when they refuse to be honest with their kids uh or just the, there are so many movies or books where, you know, they're legitimately scary, but it works because it's not about werewolves, right? It's not really about werewolves. Mm-hmm. It's about something else. And you can latch on to that because unless you actually, for some reason, believe in werewolves, <laughs> that's not a real fear. But like being concerned that someone's changing is a real fear. And, yeah. you know, this is a much more grounded story than that, but we, it, I think being a more grounded story allows the emotional parts to get more heightened. You can kind of go in the other direction. Yes. We, we, we're aware of the scenarios, but you can, you can go crazier with the emotion because we're already so familiar with the idea of those emotions, you know, because. And we participate in pop culture. I mean, a lot of this is very, yeah. you know. Yes. A lot of a lot of the convention stuff is th- stuff I simply witnessed. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. The girl hugging Brandon, saying she spent you know seventeen. She got seventeen thousand dollars in credit card debt, and she got another credit card just to come to meet the same actor again at a new convention. I, I watched a girl do that, and a, a friend of mine uh, who's deeply into fandom stuff read it and was like, "Yeah, I absolutely know people who have gotten out new credit cards to take fandom vacations, and you know, like I've I've met these people, and I've and I've I, and I've been on both sides of the table. So a lot of the a lot of the conventions yeah. was me being kind of exercising my own demons about going to conventions, which is generally not something I enjoy as a, as a as a thing. I'm an introvert, mm-hmm. fakes being an extrovert really well, but the constantly being on absolutely kills me. So yeah, I think people can, there's a, there's a lot that people will be familiar with and we get into extraordinary detail in some things. There are some absolute kill shots in there that will, that will horrify about 10 people like the AOL page. (laughs) I think that there's an extent too with the social media age where there are plenty of people who 
understand being on both sides of a parasocial relationship, even if you have, I don't know, 300 followers. Because mm-hmm. it can just happen. It can just fucking happen these days. You don't have to be on a TV show or have produced anything. Yeah. That's yeah. I had the world's most bizarre attempt to cancel me uh, this past winter. And I'm just, I'm not. I'm not famous. Yeah, I, I, but like reading this book, you know, the folks listening to this podcast, it's interesting. I I was a comics person long before I was aware that organized fandom was a thing that existed, you know, so I don't assume, although social media has made it such that I think most people are aware of organized fandom, even if they don't participate in it. I'm aware that this is to say, I'm, I'm aware some of my listeners might not be part of the fandom space that a lot of this book is drawing from, but I love that you guys have clearly been in both places as well-known creators who do signings and people waiting in line to talk to. And that, that has included me, you know, although I'm usually there to try to convince people to come on my show as opposed to sign things. And, and then, but you've also like your fans yourself and so much of the things that are painful to read and you're like there's like a cringe it's only possible because you also empathize and you've you've seen it and there's the horror but there's also an empathy there and i think the book would be very uncomfortable if it didn't also have that you know what i mean yeah that was one of the big things we we tried to do with it i mean also if you're if you're totally not involved in fandom or social media it's still it becomes almost this anthropological horror story of looking into this part of the world that you don't you're not a part of. So I think it can be entertaining both ways. Like, <laughs> there's enough explained. That is true. You don't have to understand. And you don't have yes. to have been part of any major online organized fan experience. And in fact, it's almost better if you haven't, because then the horror of what goes on in the name of, of fandom will, will kind of hit you. I mean, for me, one of the, the important things about the, I mean, the, and this is not, this is not story terror. This is not virgin story territory. There's, there's, you know, I mean, misery was probably the, the, the most famous precursor Honestly, Hans Christian Andersen's entire stalking of 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 some of some major literary figures in the in the nineteenth century could also be the, the, the most precursor. You Ooh. know, oh yeah, the Little Mermaid was all about Jenny Lind and like how he she wouldn't return his affections and therefore she needed to die miserably. Like he was not a, a well man. Mm. I mean, and parasocial fandoms existed forever. I have wonderful letters that were sent to Walt Whitman that were just incredibly cringe. Whitman got all the crazy fan letters, including one from Bram Stoker, who basically sent everybody his grinder profile for 10 years straight. Oh, of course he did. But there's one by a woman from (laughs) Barnett Smith in 1860. And if you look it up, it is truly amazing. And possibly the most cringe thing you will ever read. Susan Garnett Smith to Walt Whitman, 1860. Go find it. It it does not disappoint. There is nothing ever been more cringe committed to print. And this was back when she was writing in cursive and sending it by mail. So, Hmm. but for me, one of the the things that we do in the story is, is first of all, admitting that it exists in a social media age. And the second thing is making the star complacent. I'm like complicit in the in the encouraging of the parasocial relationships, both for money and attention. Um, a lot of the right. the usual ways the story is written, this type of story is that the, the 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 star is just like a kind of innocent person trying to go about their life, and you know maybe they have some, you know, very mild negative characteristic. Ooh, they're a bit grumpy and sometimes short with fans because being creative is hard and tiring. Or, ooh, you know, I mean, yeah, that's that's misery. Was basically James Conn is 
just a writer and he gets kidnapped and nothing yeah. nothing there is his fault. Yeah. He's going to kill a character, but he should be allowed to kill off a character in his book. Yeah. And he's sad because he can't actually write literary books. He has to write these these awful romance books. They're they're that are um, you know adored by these awful degenerates like the, the the Kathy Bates character. Yes, disgusting women and the things that women like. Ugh. Which you know then the movie proves yes. that are degenerate. Yeah, but I have seen a lot of weird stuff go on on the actor side in terms of, of you know people I'm sort of one or two degrees away from and the way they have encouraged fans is not healthy. It's not good and it's not healthy. And, and, and I was, part of me was kind of exploring the, the psychosis beneath doing that, you know, other than just wanting money and attention. And I think Luke's arc, Luke is the actor character, uh, you know, ultimately what he's trying to achieve is, is for me why the book works. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we, the trope of the, obsessed fan is pretty well-worn territory but you know making him complicit i think is is what makes the book more exciting yeah even swarm didn't do that i don't think swarm stuck the ending but i haven't gotten to it Mm. yet it's it's kind of it it started off uh a good idea but a very shallow take on it and then didn't get any deeper gotcha fair enough Obsessed Beyonce like, fans. It's, oh, the new movie. Got it. But it's a series. It's like, no, you know, it's oh, a prime series. Oh, it's a series. Oh, okay. You know, it, but the thing is, it's also so clear that part of why Luke does this is this is how you have to make a living if you're not, if you're not truly famous. Yeah. If you're on a you CW know? show, you know, this famously, your man from, from the Arrow strikes scab, Stephen Amell, hmm. he, he actually founded the 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 agency that would hawk actors out to conventions to do signings that was his business and now his fame has faded to the point where he's only getting the tiny little side thing like the size of booth that katie had in the book just the single three foot wide one and there aren't people yeah. in line for him it's so funny to me that the three of us are like oh a three foot booth we know what that means yeah that that means <laughs> 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 yes, it means they are, no one's going to like like you enough to, yeah. keep, to 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 let you take up a lot of space. Yeah, I, I but I just do appreciate how I feel like you both are inhabiting a dual identity, which is important, like in how in, in informing this book, because I think you have an you have an estimate here where you, I think in, in in the back matter where you're like about five percent of fandom is basically a danger to itself and others, and then the other ninety five percent is is not actively a danger to itself and others this is not an anti-fandom book yeah no i have seen amazing transformative things communities and support within fandom you know truly truly wonderful things have come out of a bunch of people loving the same show or the same book or the same comic or whatever yeah Um, i mean just yesterday there was like a really amazing article that came out about a group that got together to hand out fentanyl testing strips and Narcan. And they were just, they met, they, they all met at the gathering of the juggalos. And they were like, you know what? This is an important thing we need to do. And I was like, that rules. <laughs> that, that does Fandoms rule. can be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Go ICP. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and, and, and there's some, all, there are also, there's some deranged things that are just not harmful. There's the story of the person who early on in the days of Instagram, when you couldn't like, bookmark and save posts used to write dms to pete wentz from fallout boy 
to save vegan recipes and she would copy paste the vegan recipe. (laughs) (laughs) She knew he'd never reply. So she would just have all these vegan recipes in her DM chain, one way DM chain to people. And yes, that's completely deranged, but also just adorable. I mean, it's a shame Pete went back and be like, wow, you know, like that, that, that roasted butternut risotto was really fucking great, man. (laughs) You know, there's the the DMs Lady Gaga to tell her about her day. And I think there's, it's people looking for connection. And, and part of the reason is, is the structure of social media in a sociological, you know, scientific viewpoint, social media Normally, when we think of our connections, we have like our, our very close, tight connections, like a, a close friend, you know, a, a sibling, maybe a parent or, or a child. Then we have our like looser friends, you know, the people you see every so often at conventions. You don't talk to them very much, but you still consider them a friend, even if they haven't been to your house. I guess for me, like the, the, the close, close friend things, have, have you been to each other's house, where each other lives? And then there's the, the people you've never met. And on Instagram or Twitter or, or all other social media, it presents those people in exactly the same way. So your brain goes from like looking at a post from your bestie who stayed with you last week to looking at a post from someone you went to school with to a post from Chris Evans. And they're all presented in exactly the same context as if they were the same relationship, which is part of why our brains do weird things. And you find yourself almost replying mm. to some acting you've never met on social media because you just like your brain just kind of flips and you're like, oh shit, that's Lee Pace. I don't know him. I'm not going to say anything. Yeah. And even before then, though, there's like all the studies about the magic of just staring at someone's giant face for hours on end. It mm-hmm. just, it puts you in this weird place because even people you talk to all the time, you're not staring at their giant face without talking as they say things at you. Just for hours, you're and right. Hours there were and studies hours. about that. Yeah, like early and early, earlyish in the history of film. That is a, that's yeah. a great point. And you know, and so it's so it's like even worse than when you see Samantha, who you went to high school with, just pop up every so often. Like it's it's so much worse than that because <laughs> I can ignore Samantha. Speaking of cringe, how did you guys develop the concept for the TV show that Luke Indiana was in? And because it's such a good. Like you, you really nailed it, like of exactly the right kind of show and like the storyline. Do you have a great device in here of a TikToker explaining the fandom to the viewers? Like, how did you guys develop that? That's not I was like, was Erica, there has to be fun. bad green screen fringe. And she's like, I hate you. Oh man. I, I mean, the show was all you, but it's, it, it is perfectly that like kind of era of show that has an inexplicable fandom, like Stargate SG-1. Well, mm-hmm. I kind of, I kind of took all the tropes from Super Hulak and mashed them together, and then put them in space. I, I spent right. a lot of time on Tumblr. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, know that, but that's where to go for the source material there. And kind of looking at what people made fan art out yeah. of, and what where they would take tropes and relationships and stuff like that, and just creating this show about these, you know, two guys and a robot that go through space, or an android that go through space, and and. Do, do kind of case of the week stuff. And of course, there's a really good female character, but she gets killed off as an end of season, like damseling, shock ending. And, you know, the, the, you know, all the stars are straight, but like everyone ships the, the pirate captain, the pirate space captain with the, with, with the Android and like overanalyzes their reactions and the way they look at each other. And it, it, it was just so much fun to write because it just flowed so naturally. I've seen so much of this. Yeah, for the mm-hmm. for the drawing side, for the 
captain. He's only there for like two shots, maybe. There's two panels he's in. I think it was kind of like a boy Utena vibe, where <laughs> it's a it's a little bit military, but sort of fantasy in that way. And then <laughs> Luke's costume was pulled from this that I only know because it's it is the store where. Grimes got that outfit she was photographed in where she's like performatively walking around in like desert water raider jumpsuit while performatively reading Marx. It's like this <laughs> hilarious photo of her like definitely not reading a book. And it's it's perfect. It's the perfect sort of annoying Fremen kind of look. Yeah. No, that was perfect. I gave I gave Erica very little direction in the what people look like or what they were wearing simply because I wanted plausible deniability. Because there are going to be people going out like, is, is Luke based on this person? Is Luke based on that person? And I, I didn't want anything in the script that would have led anyone to believe that Luke was based on anyone. Because honestly, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you think Luke Indiana is based on you, you need to get therapy right now. And luckily <laughs> for me, the closest thing I thought of was a character in a prose book, so I don't know what he looks like, that Alex hasn't read, so she couldn't have taken it from that. There you are. Yeah, let's, let's talk about like the, the designing of the characters. I don't I don't want to go into, in the non-spoiler part, I don't want to go into the design of the, the kidnapper, but yeah, let's talk about, you do have Luke Indiana, which boy, what, what a good stage name. And, you know, and can we go into the story I, of why yeah. that is? Yes. Okay. Sorry. Very quickly. And then I'll turn it over to Erica for design. Luke Indiana was a long running sort of joke among me and a couple of friends of mine. When there was the current editor in chief of Marvel Comics, when he was younger and working for Marvel Comics as an editor, was told to go hire Japanese writers because manga was really cool. So he flew his ass to Japan, went to comic it, couldn't find one Jap- writer in the whole of Japan who was willing to write for <laughs> Marvel Comics. So instead he decides, I would actually like to write for Marvel Comics, but my contract says I can't write for them while I'm editing them. So I will create a, I will create a yellow face character, Akira Yoshida, and then I will write comics. I will write very bad comics for Marvel that are about honor and family and samurais, but in space with boobs. They were really bad. They made Sax Romer look like, you know, Edward Said. And Mm -hmm. the thing about the name Akira Yoshida is if you're going to create a whole ass like fake Japanese name and try to convince people you know anything about Japan, you probably should not name yourself after Akira, the only Japanese comic that non-weebs know. And Yoshida, which is the surname of of Marvel's first Japanese character. (laughs) It is... Yeah. When I turned around to someone, I was like, I was like, it's like naming your Western character Luke Indiana after Luke Skywalker and Indiana Jones. And I was like, hey, wait a minute. Because at that time, it was very hard as a as a as a woman writer to get any traction at these companies. And then back then I sort of cared about writing for them, but I don't now. Um and uh, I was like, Well, what if I create I create a guy in your MFA, edgy 25-year-old white male writer called Luke Indiana? who writes a six-issue miniseries for Image Comics in which the female character is fridged in the first issue as a way to justify the, the, the male character's uh, arc and, and make him want vengeance. And that ends on a down note in issue six because I want to make something real and something like important. And then I can go write Iron Man. I never did that because I don't actually really want to write Iron Man. And it seems like a whole lot of work. And I couldn't, I just, the whole, that whole edgy white male, like writing thing just, 
made me very very tired to think about. But I would I would dredge up Luke Indiana every so often and be like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna if I get really frustrated by this industry, I'm gonna reinvent myself as a 25 year old white dude with dodgy morals. Um, oh, and also I keep threatening to create a Rogue Nebula comic um, or write a TV pilot of it because it is such glorious trash. Rogue Nebula is the fake show in the book in Parasocial. I. <laughs> I would love, I mean, look, like you make, because you made a, a playlist for the, for the comic and I, I will, I will gladly absorb any ephemera that comes developed around this world that you have created in here. The yeah. nostalgia train is ready to bring back that 2000 sci-fi channel aesthetic. So I, I think we're ready. I'm not ready, but I know the world is. That's yeah, exactly. Erica, how much fun was it making fan art? of art that you had invented. I, yeah, it was, it was, it was one of those things where it was half fun and half cringe because I, we are, Alex and I are pulling from the same well. And so she made specific references to clamp and I was like, Oh God, this is great. And also I'm reminded of myself at 16 and it's both delightful and horrible. Well, because you probably had this phase mm. where you were drawing like that. Oh, yeah. Maybe even oh, earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that's, that's, like, that's like little 14-year-old Erica or something. I mean, my daughter's 12, and she's kind of doing that now. And, and so it's weird to go back to the style that you've grown out of, but also still kind of love, and then try to replicate yeah. it. It's like you can't because you're, you're, you're somewhere else now. But Well, and like how much do you go into the, into the style? Do you fully commit? Do you not? Do you, you want to keep it? A little bit, yeah. It was. There's a lot of thinking involved. It was, no, it was definitely fun. I was sitting there yelling, "Screen tones, leaves, petals." (laughs) Oh yeah, no, that that's all. That's all the stuff you had mentioned. Clamp specifically, and I was like, "Yep, yep, all right." That that was when I was vice president of the anime club. The kissing scenes from Mars also got mentioned. I still love Mars. Mm. (laughs) Just a just a classic show. Yeah, shojo that was actually quite emotionally violent, as a lot of the good shojo is. Oh yeah. Well, there's just even like the even like the fan art on the the kidnapper fridge and stuff like that. There's just images of images. But yeah, you have like multiple different styles of fan art of Rogue Nebula within the comic. Yeah. So t- talk to me a little bit, Erica, about designing Luke Indiana. I mean, you we see him in so many different guises throughout here. It took so long to come up with Luke because. Hmm. The, the thing that we both agreed on was that he had to, you know, he has to be handsome. He's on TV. He's got all these female fans, but he can't be too handsome. He can't be movie handsome. <laughs> so how do you like simplify for cartooning and make this very clear distinction? And also you have to have the sort of thing where you're, you are handsome, but there is an extra level of handsome that you are when you're on sh- on your own screen, right? Like, pretty people are always prettier when they have their makeup and hair done. And yeah, generally, if you're at a convention or kidnapped, you're not like at your best. So there, <laughs> there are like I we were saying, but the the layers of coloring. There's like layers of presentation, which also in you know, the layers of presentation are also part of the theme of the book, like how you present yourself is part of the lies or truths you're telling, you know, as far as, as much as, you know, acting is a lie, which 
it technically is. But I guess if you're selling that presentation. So yeah, like it, there are just so many drawings of just guys that weren't correct. And one of the things that I often like to do is I'll like draw a real person and then I'll draw them. I'll draw a drawing based on the drawing of the person and keep going from there. So you start with something and there are these little little traits that come with real people that you wouldn't necessarily think of if you're just doodling. And it eventually became, what if you take Robert Pattinson, but sort of smooth down the edges? So it's, he doesn't have that perfect sharpness. It's not that movie level of, you know, perfect sharp nose, that perfect jaw. It's just, it's a little bit less. Mm -hmm. And then I just kept drawing that character until it was not Robert Pattinson, but smooth. And so, yeah, it was just, there was... Right. It was so hard to get this guy because <laughs> yeah like everyone knows who he is <laughs> but how do you like figure him out like how do you create him and you even get to have the moment of secret anime prints of him and, and oh God, of him yeah. and his captor and have it i mean there's just multitudes in here there are so many layers of depending on who's perceiving who you know what situation he's in and like the, the 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 level of what was one of the reasons I wrote the book was I was fascinated about people f fictionalizing real life fiction in real time, you know. So looking at two mm. actors and say, oh, they're these two these two straight men who live in different states are secretly having an affair. Here is my extensive Tumblr dissertation on why they're actually secretly having an affair. Oof. And you know, his kidnapper continually fantasize like her her own fantasies about what's going to happen in a particular situation and and where she's going in her mind and how she's presenting him at various times. Now he's presenting himself both on Instagram and when he's at the convention and answering questions. And you know that you know what the reality what the actual reality is behind what he's saying and how he's spinning it. And so yeah, there's this constant like fictionalization of self, fictionalization of others of other real people that's that's happening and that just, that just fascinates me because it goes well beyond the the presentation of self in social media which is the obvious low-hanging fruit yeah and i think like even and little things like uh one part that i'm happy with is right after the the car crash that happens before the kidnapping luke has to talk to our kidnapper and he turns and gives her a smile and he's like bleeding from the face but he's still like shooting his pleasant mm -hmm. movie star smile and that part is really fun to me because as soon as he's not looking at her she's not looking at him he's back to like i just got my face smashed in by a car yeah yeah it's extremely effective oh i'm just looking at those pages right now they're so stunning alex did you do the lettering for that stuff as well or did you guys split some of that work we split some of it. I mean, I love lettering on Erica's art. Every so often she'll be like, I see what you're trying to do there, but I want to do that myself now that I have an idea where your head is. And she'll go do it herself, which is fine. But she it's usually just to make something dirtier. Like sometimes the, a font is a little too fonty and I like to have it a little, Yeah, you know, it, I'll just like literally trace it and the tracing gives it a little bumpiness. Yeah. That's so great. A lot of fun on the design side, you know, the, the mm -hmm. working lettering design into Erica's work is one of the greatest joys of working with Erica because uh, there's, a, there's a panel where L Luke kicks a tire of his car and says, fuck, 
And Erica left this big white space next to the panel. And I'm like, well, I could put the lettering on the art or I could put the lettering in the place where the art is not and leave more of the art to the view. So obviously option two is the better option. So I just kind of drew this really wiggly balloon that opened up into the white panel border and then just wrote, wrote, plopped a, this giant fuck in the, in, 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 the, in the white space, which is it was in a slightly rough way. And that, that was one of my favorite mm-hmm. things I did lettering. There's also a, a big crack in a red and black panel that I love in a kind of a dirty oh, yeah. set style white letter. We will get into that one later. Uh, one <laughs> thing that I'm just obsessed with is, you know, I, I haven't been to cons. Well, I haven't, I haven't been to cons since the pandemic began. So I haven't witnessed the photo booth booth, the uh, celebrity photo appearance booth thing in person, but I, I have seen it online and, and how you guys present it in the book. And there, what's so cool is, well, one, there's a general sense when you're reading this that surely the person who's going to become the kidnapper is one of the people who's doing this appearance. So which one of them is it? Uh, so you have like a lineup almost of the people and the interactions. But then on top of it, like it, the whole booth thing reminds me a lot of the peep show booths in Times Square and other kind of peep show booth setups, because you have this limited amount of time where you pay money and the person who you're trying, who you want to look at is in the booth for that duration. And they perform for you. In this case, they perform affection and support for you. And then your time is up and it's the next person. And having that moment where you see the con staffer like squeegee the human grease off the dividers. Cause like, you know, before COVID began, there that you didn't have like dividers in the plexiglass. And I know a lot of stars were like really thankful for the plexiglass dividers because it meant they didn't have to accept as much unwanted touching from strangers that they had to experience before. Man butter. It- it's so nasty. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of, one of the experience, one of the, one of the other guys says that in the comic is, oh, it's bad. But, but yeah, having the guy wipe down the booth, I'm like, oh, this is the peep show. This is the peep show. Well, I've always thought of those photo ops. I've, you know, I mean, obviously blessings and love to anyone who, 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 takes joy in that. And I know a lot of people who do, but for me, it's, it was, it was something, it was kind of a hard no. I never understood why you would want to go up and touch a stranger and get a photo with them. Mm-hmm. And get, you spend $250 mm-hmm. or $200 for th- 30 seconds of interaction where they go and take a photo of you touching them in some way or like being near them or doing some little funny like pose. And then you get the photo and maybe they sign it and that's it. And I, I never understood the appeal for that. And there was something incredibly voyeuristic and zoo-like about it for me. And I tried to bring that out yeah. with that. And it was really important for me to have those side moments, like the the person cleaning off the screen, Luke taking a break for water. There's a point where Luke sanitizes his hands, like all these little moments in between where they kind of get to be themselves for a millisecond before having to be on again, were important to show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even the ones that are completely benign, still represent that there's more than just the interaction for the people who are familiar with you know getting these photos you experience one part of it but there's still more right right there's right yeah like like just how every production there's 500 things you're not seeing and even if it's just taking a photo with someone there's still like all this setup and all the stuff that goes on in between it's still a production but it's just so interesting to me just because you know being an actor was considered disreputable work hundreds of years ago because it was associated with sex work, right? And now it's a similar neat, like people are, you want, want to pay money to be in proximity to your body, basically. 
And that's this added level of, I mean, work that I don't know that people necessarily think about when they think about that career line, but seems pretty, pretty significant to me. I also feel, and I, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say, I, I, you, you have a lot of work here about the, the power of names, both metaphorical and literal, and also like Chad Hackensack, who plays Detective Sandwich, Samich on CSI. Ruben Samich. Ruben Samich. I, I mean, sat around oh to the friend God. and got drunk and we tried to think of where the CSI spinoff would be. And we decided it was CSI Walla Walla, which was what the show was called mm. for a while. But then we wanted to bring the show back later on in another reference, in another way, later in the story. Yes. So, so, yeah. so, so it had to be the local else. guy who was the, the guy who was in the local CSI spinoff, Ruben Sandwich from CSI East Texas. Yeah, it was so much fun. It was originally CSI Corpus Christi, but they ran out of ways to kill people on a beach. The back matter of this book is really outstanding. You guys have two amazing essays here, and they give readers a lot to th- of insight without telling you what to think. So if you're the kind of fan who appreciates that, I, I, I'm excited to get that into your hands as well. And the music, of course, we've got music throughout of it that's like the, in, in the margins. Yes. Songs. Always a good some, soundtrack There's, there's as some well. diegetic songs yeah. as well, which we had mm-hmm, a lot of fun mm-hmm. putting together. I mean, oh my God. And you're di- you have the diegetic text messages. Like, I don't want to give away. We'll, we'll talk about, we'll talk about that when we get to the spoilers. But I guess, Erica, I would love to know, you know, you spent a long time doing Squirrel Girl. And is there anything that you learned from Squirrel Girl that you've put to use here specifically where you like would not have as- assumed that it would have translated, but it does? I don't, I don't know if it's anything from that in particular as much as just the experience of working on comics for a long period of time Mm. just because i feel like any problems or hurdles or things i had to get over there were more or things that you don't have when you're working on an independent work you know Mm. uh no totally but the humor all lands here and there's definitely you know amazing humor in it that rewards the reader as we build up towards the very very intense confrontations that occur soon after i'm kind of incapable of writing without a funny bit you know it's it just happens it's a serious book about and then i'm like well but what if we just crack a joke or two yeah exactly like yeah yeah we gotta have you have room and sandwich it's important (laughs) (laughs) and fandom is funny you have to have that as well i mean just any story that only has one tone is nonsense to me anyway you know like just things happen Mm. things are stupid Stupid things happen. How dare you talk about a kill- killing of <laughs> a sacred deer like that? Okay, that that's yeah. true. That is a one-note movie. I, 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 worked, seen I worked for a showrunner who just fucking loved that movie and was like, I want everything, all the dialogue to be like the dialogue in Killing of a Sacred Deer. And I'm like, sir, this oh, is God. an adult animated sci-fi show. Oh, God. <laughs> I can't <laughs> imagine doing that. Okay. I tried to make going- one joke. I'm just saying we're we're going on a slight killing of a sacred deer tangent, but the the reason that let's say works for that movie is because you're dealing with real people, and if you sort of cut the emotion out of real people, you're now forced to deal with the fact that you're looking at people who are behaving in a way that is not normal. But if you cut mm. emotion out of animation, it looks like you fucked up. Unless you really very obviously are making it extremely emotionless, like everyone they wanted is robot. very matter of it, fact, and just the world was very fantastical. They were like marooned on this other world and with a lot of biological danger from 
from the from the ecology, there were no bad aliens. It was just being in a new ecology that they didn't understand, a new ecosystem, and they wanted everything incredibly matter of fact and dry and minimal. And I'm just like, it's your show. Yeah, it just it just doesn't work as well when you have to draw the thing because you have to you're dealing from a with a, from a space where you're not in reality. And to take it even further out of reality without that being the point, you know, without it, you know, you're not trying to do like fantastic plan or something where you're doing something really weird. Yeah. Then it feels like a mistake. Yeah. That, I mean, that I is still, my critique I still of the thing I haven't seen. Killing of the Sacred Deer would be a more interesting f- film for me. It wouldn't have been the film that Yorgos Lanthimos wanted to create, which I completely recognize. But like, if it were more, if there was more emotion in it and people were like reacting you know, if it was a horrible mistake that then snowballed and then you had a psychopath, basically. Because in that film, like, kind of everyone's a psychopath. And yes, I'd rather have, have it just be something that just went horribly wrong and then snowballed. You know, I'd rather have it be more of a Greek tragedy than just this this kind of, God, you know, Dogma 95 kind of thing that happens. Lars von Trier on a bad day. <sighs> Oof. Yeah, no, I'm not okay with, well, I don't know. Also, can we can we just like, shout That's... out to Lars Von Trier looking for a girlfriend on Instagram? That was really what? Cute. No. Yes. What? Yes, yes. He po- he wants to he wants to find a muse slash girlfriend slash someone to hang out with. And he posted the, the, the most adorable and like emotionally sincere little Instagram video about wanting a girlfriend. And huh. I don't want to be Lars Von Trier's girlfriend, but I almost write, wanted to write to him and be like, you go, dude, you know. Huh. Okay. Wow. So he's not that that that's the that's, opposite of what any famous person would do. They, sincerity, you don't believe in Lars Lunter though. Like I can see Lars Lunter just being like incredibly pain like he he was totally dogma ninety five in his own basic basic Tinder ad. Yeah, Alana and I obviously both went in the complete opposite direction. We both thought it was going to be the worst thing in the world. No, it, well, I mean, <laughs> like maybe you'll think it's terrible, but I, I thought it was—I thought it was just incredibly emotionally honest and sincere. And you know, I kind of wish him all the best finding someone that he is happy with. I would be so scared that it would just I mean, be I, a I have a lot of for his work. I don't always like what he creates, but I like the fact that he tries to do odd things. Like I think he has to. Like I have a lot of respect mm. for creators continue to evolve and push boundaries throughout their career. You know, like David Bowie, like Scott Walker, the British Scott Walker, not the weird American politician. Um, uh, yes. I think that, <laughs> you know, Martin Scorsese is a great example. Everyone's like, oh, he just makes gangster films. But like, no, you know, he, he makes a lot of you know, Killers of the Flower Moon, Bus doesn't live here anymore, Bring Dead. Um, you know, Hugo, he, he keeps just being like, what if I do this? And I, I love a creator mm-hmm. who just is, is like 75 years old and keeps going, what if I just do something totally different now? Why do the same thing? Yeah. I'm so excited for the yeah. movie that's coming. Like it's okay to fail because you know, I used to race sailboats quite, quite seriously in Hong Kong and, um, something was said to me early on in my sailing career was, you know, if you're not over the line half the time at the start, you're not trying hard enough. And I've always kind of kept that as like, you know, if if you're not, if you're not trying to expand the art and the storytelling to the point where you fail a a fair amount of the time or, or aspects of it fail, you're really not pushing far enough. 
For folks who are not familiar, Alex is definitely in the running for my the most interesting man in the world <laughs> category <laughs> of people. But that is very true. Well, I want to I want to get into all the spoiler stuff now. So we're going to say to listeners from here on out, it's all spoilers. Pick up the book, join us, come on back. As I there there were there were two big moments where. Actually, no, there was like, I, I asked out loud several times reading this book, but I, 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 in my note that predates like us even scheduling this, I have the words, are you evil for the fanfic reveal? Because boy, oh my God, I think I screamed and laughed. It was like a scream laugh at the same time. I mean, the book has more endings than Johnny Toe's election, but I, I think each one adds something. Um yeah, tell us where your screams. Oh, I should actually say which one of these these were. Well, certainly at the end reveal of the book that this is Luke's book. Oh my God, that's brilliant. And did not anticipate <laughs> that because I have literally never seen a book in which the creators of the book have said, actually, this belongs to the character. Well, it's a book about, it's a book about fictionalization. So like, it's all about people fictionalizing yeah. themselves and fictionalizing other people. Um, yeah, the, uh, the, fam- the famous act, something better yeah. than he is. And so it's only natural that like it turned out that the entire world that attracted a fiction or parts of it were a fiction, like how much of it is a fiction. There's also a thing too, that I always really love in fiction. It, it's one of the things that I'm a real sucker for where someone, a character will be talking about someone else or maybe a char- someone they fabricated but they're really talking about themselves and it's the only time that they're honest about who they are is when they're complaining mm. about some other asshole. And <laughs> I have a, it, this feels like that to me. It broke my brain. And, and and then having at that very end, that little text message that indicates that Lily really is missing. That is bold as well. Well, Incredibly did he bold. kill her? Did she just go to LA, take the money and run? Like, who knows? Like it, I, I, it's important that it be, that it be open. You know, it's important that I want you to finish the, I want people Mm -hmm. to finish the book and look back on the rest of it and realize they can't trust a single fucking thing they read. Yeah, I immediately reread the book like twice sitting on the beach because I needed to see it through the eyes. And there were so many things that I realized that I hadn't parsed until that moment. But it is also so bold to just look at the cover of your book and not see your name on it and see the persona that you had considered potentially to. Well, actually, we, I think I credited it to Alex Henderson, a portmanteau. Oh, yes. I see it. Alex Henderson and Luke Indiana. <laughs> oh, I, it's very faint where I'm reading it. Yeah, because I mean, the, um, we, we did a very faint credit treatment on the cover because I, I, I wanted the, the, the cult of the auteurs to disappear. Yeah. Yeah. We also just really liked yes. how stark it was. And the more, the more stuff you add, the, the less stark it becomes, you know? So it it's all still mm. there. You just yeah. you just have to work for it. It's it's a striking cover. I feel like I should have, yeah. But no, what when, when, when I when I was asking if you're if you were evil, it was when you see the the fan fiction, the real person fan fiction screenshot okay, from Ao3, which is yeah, which is a fandom. It's a fan. It's, a fan, uh, it's like a source fan works software. Like okay, so the levels of. The lowest level of hell is fanfiction.net, then old live journal posts, and then AO3. Mm-hmm. And then, but now a lot of fanfiction is like on, you know, social media fanfiction, people writing it on Twitter, Twitter, and then I'll, or, or I guess elsewhere now, and porting it over to AO3. 
That's extremely meta. Writing an entire story. Oh yeah, there's some, and they're and, and they're done as social media from the characters in a, in a tweet chain as like images. Like they're really clever. I've seen some amazing ones. Um, but yeah, that like, that's fucking brilliant. That yeah. it, when I said there's there's something there there's absolute headshots that are going to like destroy about ten people in the audience. That's one of them because it's you know like the tags. <laughs> It's painfully. There, well, there's, so, there's so many in jokes mm-hmm. in there. The name of the author, um, uh, some of the tags. Um, it's just it's it, the, the 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 fact that the title is is a line from a Richard Sicken poem from Crash. Uh, like it, oh, this incredible hmm. depth of joke there that almost nobody is going to get, and I don't care because I just I just had so much fun gating it as like the ultimate like just Tumblr phase. AO3 story. And that was Rogue Nebula, too. That was yeah. that was me just backing the tro- no, truck up and going, is this baby empty yet? <laughs> it could be. <laughs> Dump them all. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I, I had to keep going back and forth to be like, wait, was this written before this happened? Yeah, the, the book actually like, ta- book takes place in like 2021. Um, so the pandemic, people are starting to unmask. And it was re- one of the things that was that was really very therapeutic for me in writing the book was portraying the pandemic in fiction in a way that wasn't about the pandemic. That was yeah. just like people are going about their business, doing their day, right. like wearing masks, right. sanitizing, having this squeaky, squeaky um, peep show glass between them and the person they're photographing and and just like acknowledging that it existed instead of just trying to pretend that it didn't happen. I mean, if we want to even go even more English class about this, one of the big themes of the pandemic was people searching for connection because they were so extremely extra alone. Well, and are, right? I mean, like yeah. ongoing pandemic. Right. For those of us who can't afford to get sick again, we're actually more isolated now. Back when masks were required in public spaces, we could go to some of those things. Like you could go to the museum because there'd be people wearing masks. I can't even ride the subway now because there aren't enough people masking. So like you can't get anywhere. You can't, you're stuck. And the rate of COVID spread is sky high right now. So we're actually more isolated now than we were a year ago because most people aren't masking and COVID is just as virulent as it was ever. So it's just compounded. But yeah, I I, I was just really th- I was just really thinking about like is she enacting a fan fiction, or that she read in some way? Was this an idea she had and premeditated there, or was this something that was written out as a fan fiction after it happened? Yeah. You know what I mean? It could it, yeah. it could be in so many different. Well, but also, it's in Luke's book. So did she write that at all? Right, right, right. Is Luke on Ao three? You know, like yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having the handle of her of the creator of this fan fiction be have that spelling mistake is like a joke about her almost, which is kind of like, oh yeah, that's Luke making a joke about her, the character. That that's actually a canonical spelling mistake in in the fic from it. It's taken from the rather famous fic. It's taken from. Oh. <laughs> okay. Heavenly darkness dementia Raven way. Come on. There's a notorious fan fiction, like there's literally been articles about it that ha- was written by someone with a handle that was like this person's handle. So that no, 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 no. Like the, the lead character was called I, I am Enemy, I am Ebony Darkness Dementia Raven Way. It, a fan, uh, it's a Harry Potter fanfic called My Immortal, which is famous. I, I, I would <laughs> discourage anyone from reading it as an avatar of what fanfic is because a lot of fanfic is truly great. 
a considerable amount is on the sure. the source material or, or else just more fun or hits different notes or whatever. Definitely gayer. Yeah. Can do um, things that a corporate media is not allowed to. Definitely gayer. Yeah. But but My Immortal is not the one to read. It is just, it's just <laughs> kind of famous. And it had a lot of misspellings. Right. No, but it was, but it was amazing to see that pull. Throughout the whole text, you guys are really doing something metatextual with so many kinds of media showing up in the story um, and people's text messages to each other. Yeah, the group chat. The group chat was important. At what point did you determine that the book would end with it being his book? I knew I had a story when the thing that happens at the indigenous family's house happens. When I thought that up, because I was like, this is why he's like this. And this is what he's doing. And that's also why it's important that the book was not was not authored. The author name on the book was not Luke Indiana, because that plays into that theme. And then... You know the fight. You know, you know, I was, I was like, well, I can end it after he says that last line, and we fade to black in that encounter, which is, you know, really putting him in his absolute lowest point. You think the lowest way to, the worst thing you can do to someone is kill them in a book, and killing is easy. We completely destroy this character, and then it wasn't it though. I just was like, okay, well, what happens afterwards? He obviously has an afterwards. What will he do? And he obviously posts, you know, he does the aesthetic sky post of, or the waves post of, I'm feeling better. Here's a pretty landscape. And then I'm like, oh no, he, he writes the book. Like this book is his book. So I was thinking through the process of my gut saying, this is a really great ending with the thing that happens at the, at the house, but it, it's not the ending. It can't be the ending. There has to be something more and we have to resolve in, in, in a partial way, what happens to his kidnapper and also what happens to him afterwards. And then it became, mm-hmm. it's it's his book and we don't know where she is and we don't know whether he's killed her. I remember you talking with me about question, I think you were asking me because, you know, because I'm Jewish, you know, what my familiarity was about the mythology around the angel of death, which it was, it was, it was so interesting to see how he sort of starts to open up and tell that story. And then you start to on a second read, I started to see sort of visual cues towards the emergence of the angel, like the curtains in the window and the <clears throat> the polka dots on the little kid's pajamas. And it's so easy to see where it starts to become the many eyes of terrifying angels. Yeah, that all Erica. I mean, Erica's design for that is, is fantastic. It was so nice not to have like the the very Christianized angel. I think that too is something where... I started with the angel and then worked backwards through the scene because then you could have things mm. turn into the angel. You can decide what the house looks like, right? It can be any damn house as long as it's a cheap sort of trailer house. There's a double wide. But yeah. like, mm-hmm. yeah. A Texas double wide. But yeah, like all the little details could come in afterwards and be informed by what they're going to be since, you know, that was the important part of that scene visually. Yeah, it's an amazing design. It's truly amazing how the Torah is like, we're going to just describe the craziest thing they could possibly imagine and have it tell you, be not afraid. <laughs> You're like, I mean, <laughs> thanks for telling me because I'm afraid. Good God. That's why, why I never understood the whole, the whole Christian pretty angel thing. Like, If they have to lead off with be not afraid, there's a reason. Yep. 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 It's like, I don't know. It's an anthropomorphic wheel with eyeballs. And like multiple wings and all kinds of shit. Three heads. Well, I mean, there's also an extent to if, you know, we're dealing with Vatican I and all of, 
your religion comes to you via a dead language and then you're told to draw something you know <laughs> maybe you didn't get all the details yeah, on top of just <laughs> it's nicer to look at a pretty lady with wings but even if you're trying to get to the the heart of the issue it's possible that maybe you don't your latin's not the best and you just <laughs> you just gotta draw something or you know oh, God, now, now i'm going down this path and maybe it's just you know the medici is wanted the pretty lady drawings even if you didn't know what it looked like and then it just became the thing right because they do like to pay for pretty lady art you know as we all do that's you know i mean yeah, there, there was a there design. was a lot of horny art in the italian renaissance oh there sure is oh yeah no it's all paid fanfic of god bible stuff but with different figures that look like people that they know who they think are hot basically yeah th this is the one book we're allowed to talk about so i guess we have to do all our horniness via this right right and another mythology piece moment is like where the right answer for tricking the angel of death was to say that i'm nobody and i'm like ooh, odysseus i'm nobody is nobody is often the right answer for who are you in in these yeah. sorts of stories yeah. For someone who spent all his life trying to be someone to ultimately have to say to the most powerful creature he's ever encountered, I am nobody, is a moment. Yeah. And the only way he can survive is to yeah. admit that after all of this, all of this set noise, all of this effort, all of this bullshit, he is still nobody. And he knows it. And that's why he's like this. Yep. Yeah, it's really powerful. A, a piece that I also appreciate about the sort of pivot in the story where is also just that we know a, a lot of subjects of fandom think their fans are quote unquote insane. And so the idea that he is projecting that insanity onto a fan is like completely believable. I think but sometimes people have some bad experiences and just it's hard to process it. And then it becomes like, oh, they're all, you know, any all is usually going to be a little bit problematic. But, yeah, you got five percent who don't understand what boundaries are and who like stalk your Instagram and show up at your favorite coffee shop to kind of ogle you and try to talk to you, and you're gonna get weird about things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm I'm producing a film with an actor who's a household name, very nice guy. Uh, I was sending him some copies of my books, and he said, "Send them to this address. Don't put my name on it." And we're friends. We text. Right. You know, we're not close friends, but you know, we're we're friendly work colleagues. And the whole process of having to, you know, send it to a fake company so that people wouldn't find out where he lived, you know, and I was happy to do that. That's, you know, I'd asked, sure. you, you know, whenever I send anything to someone who's, who's kind of household Amy, it's, you know, do you have an assistant or a, or a PO box or something I can send this to? Yeah. I mean, there, yeah, a I friend be, of mine, I yeah. have to, if I'm tweeting at her or whatever, I cannot mention that we live near each other because I have mentioned the city I live in. But her husband is super stalked. And he's just mm. a comics guy. He he does comics. That's all he's ever done. Oh, that's uh, yeah. really shitty. Yeah. It should not come with the territory. And especially with this sort of thing, it's not ex people don't expect that to be the case. Yeah. I I also I also really just like the whole panels where she says, Your story was okay, but here's a better one. And then the story that she tells of what happened is like the super gritty you know, it is like the gritty CSI, but it's also very normal. This is something that happened that is not as spectacular as what actually happened. And I don't know if it's a better story, but I like how having it framed that way. 
Yeah, because they were yeah. the whole. They're all telling stories about who they are and what's happened, and none of it is what really happened. Yeah, it shouldn't be this satisfying to have such an to have such a an unanswerable an, story, an, an, but an unanswerable really story is. starring two assholes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, in a story that, like, if you ever got an answer, it would be less satisfying. Yes, yes. Than the ambiguity. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's two ways this story ends. He dies or she dies. Neither of them are the actual way it ends. You know, that's how you make a satisfying ending. You, you, you do something they don't see coming. But once it happens, feels completely natural and mm-hmm. makes sense. And that's tough. That's, that's what the business is. That's what the job of writing is. Well, that's what the craft of it is. And I often don't know if I have a story until I find that ending. That's the hardest thing for me. Oh, interesting. I I noodle out a lot of stuff. Erica and I are kind of like in the background, slowly working on a potential third book. And hooray. I'm getting towards an ending, but I'm kind of having to hash through it and figure out exactly what happens and going off on tangents. And it's, it's in the tough slog stage right now. But well, I'm excited it. to hear this more work from you guys coming together because it's it's quite the team up. Jumping back a bit uh, with Lily, the kidnapper, how did you come up with her character design? For her, it was a lot easier because with with Luke, his the way he looks had to be so specific, like we were saying before, like he has to be the TV handsome guy who's slightly older. <laughs> You know, slightly too old to be the TV handsome guy. But with her, we don't have a visual language that people are 100% rely- are expecting to see when you think female fan. That's a lot of people. You know, like there isn't a specific mm-hmm. type that I have to pull from. But I think one of the things that we talked about was she should be a little heavier but cute and i had i had again done the i'm going to grab a real person and work my way backwards and with her i had grabbed shannon purser who was a barb on stranger things and uh ethel and riverdale Mm. and worked backwards from her and then the clothes i basically just sort of did a lot of window shopping on golf stores like Killstar, Dolls Kill, places like right, that. Right, and it was just like really right. cute boots on one of those. I almost bought those boots. Oh yeah, no, but it was it was important to me that they were all affordable things. I hate when you see someone in something yes. and they live in a trailer and then they come out and it's okay. I know what that sweater is. That sweater costs more than your home. That this does not make any sense. Right. And here is no, I got to make sure these are all things that like someone will find cute. And then there was even stuff like she, she has on this kind of corsety deal. And one of the problems with buying those little corsety deals is that they are made with this sort of cheap plastic spiral stuff. And it like ripples with your skin. It doesn't actually do what a corset does and pull you in. Right. And I wanted to make sure that, like, it awkwardly rippled with her flesh. And not to make oh, fun of does, her, just to yes. be like, just to be like, yeah, this is the sort of thing you buy if you want to look cute and you can't afford, you know, either to make your own thing or spend $1,000 for someone to make you a corset with, like, steel boning in it. 
Yeah, and, it's and just, they're I, too I short. That was the other thing. Is I'm five ten. Every time I used to try those, they'd they'd hit like at the end of my ribs, and I'm you know, and then I'd be like, "What do I do with the rest of me?" Um, <laughs> yeah, no, they they suck. They're the worst. Yeah, but also like people want them. That's the reason they keep being sold. I know. And and she and so, I, I I the only thing mm. I suggested I think was was the the outfit where she's you know we met at Dragon Con and she's wearing this kind of, which was the corsety thing and the kind of she like her little princess dress but her little goth princess dress. Right, right. It's complicated, right? Because it's loud and it's colorful, but you don't want people to be like, oh well, obviously she's crazy because she doesn't look like a mainstream person. Yeah, well, she all her um, outfits are very mainstream. Like they're she, they're very much what you'd see at a convention. I've seen girls wear that exact outfit. Her downtime yeah. outfits, like her normal convention outfit, is is just completely normal. You know, her yeah, her all- her her downtime outfit. I think was what I think someone had once referred to as Madewell goth, where it's you've got your black tank top and you have your not red flannel, and it's just enough that you can keep you can keep up the goth thing, but it doesn't cost a lot. And it's, well, it's got the, it's nice yeah, and it's got her Ankh necklace, so she's also doing casual cosplay as Death from Sandman, basically. Yes. But you know, which was like great. It's fucking perfect. Yeah, but that's such a yeah. kind of you know that person would have that necklace and wear it, and not oh, even as God, a Sandman reference. I mean, like, yeah, she's also she's also from? too young for yeah. Sandman. That's like old. That's, is that such a thing? Yes, I guess so. It is. I don't know. I mean, I had that necklace just because there's a certain point in every girl's life where you're like an Egyptologist. Yes. Yes. There's the dinosaur phase. I don't, I don't know. The I, hieroglyphs phase, the yes. nice phase. You know, it all happens. Yep. But also the Sandman phase. I don't know. I, well, I, funny, I feel it's, like it's- It came out in the 90s. He's, Lily wasn't born then. She's also yeah. not a comics yeah. person. She's a TV person. Oh, you're right. She's not a comics person. That's a very good point. That's I true. Know. And it's like a kind of thing that a person who is of the generation who's nerdy, but maybe not a comics person would certainly have read. But if you're younger and you're not a comics person, then there's there's too many steps removed from it, probably. I, I will also admit that I haven't read it. That's one of those things where everyone's like, you just have to make through an entire volume and then it'll get good. And I'm like, I don't have time for this. I don't have time it's to a read what to to you say is not good. Uh, I, I like, enjoy the first A lot of the art is yeah, bad. That would be That's a lot. the problem. You have to slog through a lot of art that is incredibly... There's some wonderful art in Sandman, but a lot of it is incredibly second rate. And it's it's just it's just very frustrating. And the art changes every couple issues. because they Very much so, yeah. So that's very destabilizing. And I don't know, it's just not as original for people to be telling stories that reference Shakespeare anymore. I mean, that's how influential it is, that basically Sandman is its own genre now. There's so many other things doing what Sandman did. It, I feel bad because I think it is impossible now to feel that it is as revelatory as it would have been for folks experiencing it live at the time. Like, I caught the very tail end of it. It's like Watchmen. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. It was a wonderful thing of its time. It is showing its age naturally i mean it can't help but show its age and you know if you don't like passive main characters it will like all of gaiman's work it will frustrate you intensely he's (laughs) no oh my god just the nicest guy wonderfully creative man deserves every minute of his success i his books are not my cup of tea because because all the main characters are so passive and things happen to them and they're lots of like annoying kooky girls 
and then he marries them. Holy fuck, though, Alex. The whole <laughs> passive main character thing is a very good observation. Like, I'm going to, wow. American That's... Gods, too. I mean, like, anyone who adapts a Neil Gaiman story to TV, God be with you because the character won't be. That's fucking amazing. That's so real. Is there anything we want to cover before we go? I'm looking at my notes and stuff like that. Do we want to recommend some comics? Erica, you read anything good recently? Yeah. Oh, God. I haven't really read a lot of comics recently. I've been, I've read more prose books and some nonfiction. Ooh, I don't, I don't know. Read Roadside Picnic. That was good. That was the last thing I read. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, my God, Erica. It's so good. <laughs> it is. It's, I, I watched Stalker and then read Roadside Picnic, and I never go in that direction. I'm so glad that I did. The nice thing about because, I don't know what any of this is, but I'll look it up. Okay, Roadside Picnic, famous Arkady and Boris Strugatsky were famous Russian sci-fi writers. They wrote Hard to Be a God. They wrote Roadside Picnic, which was made into a film called Stalker by Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky mm. also made famous Polish sci-fi writer Stanislav Lem Solaris into a film called Solaris. Solaris and the nice yeah. thing about Tar Tarkovsky is he kind of does whatever the fuck he feels like, and it's only vaguely sure does. related to the book. So you can read Solaris as a book and you can watch Solaris as a movie and neither spoil the other one. <laughs> and you can read Roadside Picnic, which is an incredibly enjoyable book, as hmm. is Hard to Be a God, actually. Hard to Be a God is if the first episode of Game of Thrones ended with Jamie Lannister being like, okay, I got to go for a second, going into another room, pulling out an iPad and checking in with a satellite and then just like going back to Game of Thrones. But, but yeah, the, the thing with watching Stalker first was basically like, it's a movie that's basically as close as you could in the Soviet Union to talking about God and faith. And so everything in it, everything that happens or, so about to say, does not happen is an act of faith. We actually don't ever see anything happen, but we know, or at least we're meant to understand that people are surrounded by dangers at all times. And in the book... Those are just very out in the open dangers and you see them. Uh, and so I think had I read the book first, I'd been like, okay, there are these dangers here. When you're watching the movie, it's like, oh, you actually, this could all be bullshit. We have no idea. And I think that's part of the point. The mm. idea of roadside picnic is, is, is various zones in the US, in the world just got weird suddenly. The aliens stopped to have a roadside picnic on their way somewhere else. And where the places they stopped became these zones where reality doesn't work right anymore. A lot of it, a lot of it was stolen for annihilation. <clears throat> Jeff Vandermeer stopped copying Eastern European sci-fi. We can all tell. One of his other books is basically Stanislav Lem's Invincible. Nice guy, but come on, man. So yeah, and there are these people called stalkers who go into the zone and either take people in there or bring out things that are that work as like incredibly amazing batteries in the real world because they're just these power sources that make no sense, and it's ironically also about like kind of radiation poisoning and both the star and Tarkovsky himself got like uranium poisoning from working near chemical it was, they, they got I wasn't sure they, they got some sort of I think it was some sort of low-key radiation poisoning from working in the area that they filmed it in which is which is funny because I think a lot of people looking at it now are like this is a film about Chernobyl and it absolutely did not happen after Chernobyl. It was a pre-Chernobyl hmm. book and movie. Oh, he did a film about nukes, but this isn't it, you know? Oh, no, I know. I'm just saying that, that looking at it with no context, you're like, oh, obviously it's this. And you look at the dates, you're like, no. The Sacrifice was his film about nukes. 
Yeah, sure, sure. So here, here we are talking about Tarkovsky. If you see Stalker, people, if you've not already seen Stalker, it is worth seeing. The best way to see Stalker is in the middle of the summer when it's very hot out on the largest screen you possibly can in an air-conditioned theater. That is the way to see it. I, I mostly did that, but it was on my TV, which is a decent size. Yeah. And if you can, I mean, I live in New York City, so there are revival houses that like put these films on once a year. But yes, yeah, he freaking Sorcerer as well, because it's very scary and very wonderful. Things I've read, the, the coolest thing I've read recently is a new manga coming out soon called King in Limbo. It is coming out from, it's coming out from Kodansha. Was that this in the US? Hang on, let me say. Sorry, I gotta, I gotta look up because it was short sure. to me. But yeah, King in Limbo, which is if Inception were a medical thr- thriller, that sounds really <laughs> weird, but it's an, an. All right. Yeah. It's really cool. If Inception were a medical thriller, like where you, you and a partner would dive into people's brains to try to combat this strange disease that's spreading, but both the agency that's having you dive and your partner are not telling you the whole truth about what's actually going on. Okay. That feels pretty real. Well, thank you guys both for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. Erica, wh- where, where is the best way for folks to keep up with your work? Are you posting art and things like that? I, I have a Patreon. Uh, so all of my things are at Erica Fails. I've got a Patreon that I post to pretty regularly. I've got my Tumblr. I've got a, I've got a Threadless store. I'm not really on Twitter anymore. I haven't been mm-hmm. since Blue Sky got good. So I, I'm mostly on Blue Sky. Oh, that's great. What's your Blue Sky handle? EricaFails.BlueSky. I appreciate the consistency. Oh, yeah. It's it's one that I had made a blog with that name, and it was like a longer joke. And then it, I realized that it was like really easy SEO because no one else wants that name. And True. so I've been, managed to be consistent on everything. It's great. And you, you mentioned, I think Alex mentioned it, you have a horror podcast. Oh, I did. Yes. This was another baby of the pandemic because my friend Matt Wilson and I had recorded an episode for his podcast, Movie Fighters, about Chucky 2019, which we both hate. And he mm. was like, hey, do you want to talk about the new Chucky TV show? And I was like, yes, I want to talk to literally anyone about anything. <laughs> <laughs> and so we started him and Benito Sereno and I have started a podcast about that. And in the off season, we talk about we're going to have to change it up soon because we have run out of evil doll films that aren't just painful. Hmm. But in the off season, we talked about other evil doll films in the rest of the movie series. And we get far too analytical about movies that maybe don't deserve it. That's the way to be. What's the name of the show? Oh, God, I am not fully been podcasting too long. It's Friends Till the End. Friends Till the End is the name of the podcast. Wow. Yes. Okay, cool. And Alex, where's the best way for our listeners to keep up on to keep up with your work? Luckily, I have a very Baroque name. So I am Alex DeCampi everywhere. I'm like Erica. I'm, I'm not really on Twitter anymore. I moved to Blue Sky and am liking it. I'm on Instagram and I post about twice a month when I remember I have an Instagram. I'm on Tumblr where I post about once a year when I remember I have a Tumblr. Um, and that's about it. I do not have a Patreon threadless store or anything else. You should definitely check out Erica's threadless store because she has amazing t-shirts and t-shirt designs. But I, I 
I like social media, though I find managing it quite a burden around writing. So I, I think everyone would prefer that I do less social media and make more books, which is why I have so little social media. Sounds like a good plan. But yeah, it's good to be able to keep up with people's work. And I am, yeah, similarly trying to cut down on the Twitter stuff, but I am there for the moment, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn, but definitely spending much more time on Blue Sky these days where my handle is just L-E-V-I-N, as is my last name. And thank you both for coming on the show. And as we like to say, keep it geeky. <laughs>